0: Section 13 of the Roman Empire of the Second Century by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter V. Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, A.D. 147 to 180. Part 4. He took Egypt in his homeward way, and at Alexandria was willing to forget the signs of sympathy which the citizens had shown his rival leaving his daughter to their care in token of the confidence with which he trusted them. At Smyrna he wished to hear the eminent Aristides lecture, whose vanity was such that he would only consent to speak while attended with a long train of pupils, who must have free liberty to clap him when they would. The emperor let them all in willingly enough, and himself gave the signal for applause at the eloquent periods of the famous sophist at athens where he left some lasting traces of his visit in the endowment of professional chairs he had himself admitted to the eleusinian mysteries whose venerable symbols might happily shadow forth to his inquiring fancy some new beliefs or hopes about the world unseen for more than a year the emperor had rested rome and signalised his period of repose by charitable cares for the puellae faustiniani the poor girls who were to be reared in memory of his wife and bear her name we may see at rome a bas-relief in which the sculptor's fancy has portrayed the maidens clustering round the noble dame and pouring corn into the folds of the garment which one of them is holding for the purpose the medals also of the year record the liberal largess given to the populace of rome at the festivities which followed the marriage of the youthful commodus on which occasion the bonds which the state held against its debtors were thrown into the fire in the forum while similar munificence was shown in helping the ruined smyrna to rise once more in its old stately beauty after the havoc caused by a great earthquake meantime the thunder-clouds were gathering on the northern frontier and the military chiefs were anxious to have the emperor again upon the scene Once more he started for the seat of war after observing with a scrupulous care the ceremonial customs of old time. The spearhead taken from the shrine of Mars was dipped in blood and hurled by the prince's hand in the direction of the hostile borders, within which in the earlier days of the republic the lance itself was flung as a symbol of the war thereby declared. Once more victory crowned the efforts of the Roman leaders, and the title imperator was taken for the tenth time by the prince. The war itself seemed well nigh over, but Marcus Aurelius was not permitted to survive it. While in Pannonia, either at Vienna or Sirmium, in AD 180, he was struck down by disease, probably by the plague, whose ravages may still be traced along those countries by the evidence of old inscriptions. Dion Cassius, as usual, takes up the vilest story he can find and charges Commodus with parricide in the form of poison given by a doctor's hand. Other writers tell us only that the dying emperor's son showed little feeling save the selfish wish to escape from the danger of contagion by a speedy flight. When friends who were gathered round his deathbed asked whom he wished to be the guardians of his young successor, he answered only, Yourselves, if he be worthy. Then, drawing his stoic mantle round his head, he died as he had lived with gentle dignity. His health had never been robust, and it was sorely tried by the hardships of a soldier's life, by hurried journeys to and fro, and the rigour of those winters by the Danube. His resolute spirit had drawn thus far on its reserves of moral force to keep the frail body to its work but the keen blade wore out its sheath at last. The Romans mourned their emperor as they had seldom mourned for one before, yet on the day when the funeral procession passed along the streets they abstained from outward show of grief, convinced as they were, says his biographer, that heaven had only lent him for a time and taken him soon back again to his own place among the immortal gods. You also, adds the writer addressing diocletian his prince regard marcus aurelius as a god and make him the object of a special worship praying oftentimes that you may copy the virtues of a ruler whom plato himself with all his lessons of philosophy could not excel in honor of the victories which his arms had won over the formidable warriors of those border lands great monuments were raised at rome one of these an arch of triumph stood nearly fifteen centuries till a pope alexander the seventh ordered it to be thrown down because it was thought to block the way through which in days of carnival the crowds of masked revellers used to pass the arch says a modern writer had happily escaped the barbarians the medieval times the renaissance but a pope was found Not only to lay bold hands upon it, but to have the naivete to take credit to himself for doing so in an inscription which the curious still may read upon the site. A second monument is standing still, but the papal government, which dealt so hardly with the Arch of Triumph, tried to rob the emperor of this glory also, for the title carved upon his columns by the order of a second pope, Sixtus V, ascribes the work to Antoninus Pius like trajan's column of which it is a copy it is formed of cylinders of marble piled upon each other round which is coiled in spiral form a long series of bas-reliefs which illustrate the marcomonic war the literary records of the ten years struggle are too meagre to enable us to give their local colour to the scenes pictorially rendered the sculptured figures too complacently exhibit the unvarying success of roman arms to represent with fairness a war in which the German and Sarmatian tribes tasked year after year the military resources of the empire. One set of images there is which frequently recurs in varying forms, and we may trust to these as evidence of the constant hindrance to the forward movement of the legions in the wild lands beyond the Danube. The broad current of the great river and its tributary streams, the uncleared forest, and the dangerous morasses are often shown in symbolic guise upon the column, and in these Roman vanity was ready to admit the obstacles and perils which carried with them no dishonour to the eagles. Trophies of war were little suited to the character of such a ruler, but happily we have a worthier monument in the thoughts, or meditations, which intended for no eye but his, reflect his passing sentiments from day to day written here and there in the moments of his leisure sometimes on the eve of battle in the general's tent sometimes in the dreary monotony of winter quarters and by the morasses of the danube they have little nicety of style or literary finish they contain no system of philosophy set off with parade of dialectic fence but there is in them what is better far the truthful utterance of an earnest soul which would lay bare its inmost thoughts Study the secrets of its strength and weakness, and be by turns the accused, the witness, advocate, and judge. Self-inquiry such as this had been of old the favourite tenet of Pythagorean schools. It had been pressed by Socrates upon his age with a sort of missionary fervour. It had since passed almost as commonplace into the current systems of the day and become a recognised duty with the earnest-minded just as the practice of confession in the church of rome with marcus aurelius it was a lifelong habit and covered the whole range of thought and action how hast thou behaved thus far he asks himself to the gods thy parents brethren children teachers to those who looked after thy infancy to thy friends kinsfolk to thy slaves think if thou hast hitherto behaved at all in such a way that this may be said of thee ne'er has he wronged a man in word or deed. Call to recollection how many things thou hast passed through, and what thou hast been able to endure, and that the history of thy life is fully told, and thy service drawing to its close. Think how many fair things thou hast seen, and how many pleasures and pains thou hast despised, how much that the world holds in honor thou hast spurned and with how many ill-minded folks thou hast dealt kindly. In the course of such reflections he recurs with tender gratitude to the memory of those who watched over his early years, or helped to form his character, or enrich his thought, to the good parents, teachers, kinsmen, friends, for the blessings of whose care he thanks the god so fervently, while he dwells fondly on the features of the moral character of each he speaks of his mother's cheerful piety and kindly temper, of the instinctive delicacy with which she shunned not the practice merely, but the thought of evil, of how she spent with him the last years of her short life guarding the virgin modesty of his young mind, that he might grow up with the purity of his manhood unbefouled. The twenty years of unbroken intercourse with his adoptive father had not faded from his thoughts when he penned in all sincerity these graceful lines. Do everything as a pupil of Antoninus. Remember his constancy in every act which was conformable to reason, his evenness in all things, his piety, the serenity of his countenance, his sweetness, his disregard of empty fame, and his efforts to understand things duly. How he would let nothing pass without having first most carefully examined it and clearly understood it how he bore with those who blamed him unjustly without blaming them in return how he did nothing in a hurry how he listened not to calumnies and how exact an examiner of manners and actions he was not given to reproach people nor timid nor suspicious nor a sophist how he bore with freedom of speech in those who opposed his judgments the pleasure that he had when any man showed him anything better and how religious he was without superstition Imitate all this, that in thy last hour thou mayest have as good a conscience as he had. He speaks, too, in later years with thankfulness of his aged guardian's care, which would not trust him to the risks and uncertainties of the public schools, but grudged no outlay on his education, supplying him with the best teachers of the day at home as he passes in memory over the long list of these he does not care to dwell upon the order of his studies or how much he learnt from each of them of the stores of art and learning but he tries rather to remember in each case what was or might have been the moral impress on his character from the examples of their lives his governor he says gave him a distaste for the passionate excitement of the circus or the gladiators fights taught him how to endure labour and want little To work with his own hands and not to meddle with the affairs of others or listen readily to slander. Diognetus turned his thoughts from the trifles to the realities of life, introducing him to philosophy and made him feel the value of ascetic training, of the coarse dress and the hard pallet bed. Fronto meantime was leading him to note what envy and duplicity and hypocrisy are in a tyrant and how commonly the nobles of the day were wanting in parental love from sauerus he learned to admire the great men of the past thrasia helvidius cato brutus and from him i received the idea of a polity in which there is the same law for all a polity administered with regard to equal rights and freedom of speech and the idea of a kingly government which respects most of all the freedom of the governed rusticus who did him the good service of introducing him to the mind of epictetus as expressed in the memoirs of his pupils led him to see the vanity of sophistic emulation and display in the example of apollonius he saw that the same man can be most resolute and yielding he had before his eyes a teacher who regarded his skill and experience and instruction as the smallest of his merits and from him he learnt how to receive from friends what are thought favours without being either humbled by them or letting them pass unnoticed in sextus he saw the beauty of a genial courtesy and had the example of a family governed in a fatherly manner and of living conformable to nature and of gravity without affectation he had the power of accommodating himself readily to all so that intercourse with him was more agreeable than any flattery and at the same time he was most highly venerated by those who associated with him alexander the grammarian never used to chide those who uttered any barbarous or strange-sounding phrase but dexterously introduced the very expression which ought to have been used in the way of answer or assent or joining in inquiry about the thing itself and not about the word in maximus he saw unvarying cheerfulness and a just admixture of sweetness and of dignity in the moral character he was beneficent ready to forgive free from falsehood and presented the appearance of a man who could not be diverted from the right rather than of one who had been improved finally after the long survey of all the influences of earlier days he thanks the powers of heaven for all their gifts and inspirations which tended to make the path of duty easy though i still fall short of it through my own fault and from not observing the admonitions or i may almost say the direct instructions of the gods few who have read the remaining meditations can think that marcus aurelius is here numbering complacently his own good qualities of heart and temper or throwing a decent cloak over his praises of himself there is a danger doubtless that the habit of constant introspection may lead to vanity or at least to a morbid persistency of self-centred thought which may be fatal to the simple naturalness of healthy action but in this case at least there are no traces of such influence the candour of his early youth seems reflected in the utterances of later years he has a lively horror of deceit and affectation would have his soul be simple and single and naked more manifest than the body which surrounds it so that the character may be written on the forehead as true affection reads everything in the eyes of those it loves he wonders how it is that every man loves himself more than all the rest of men but yet sets less value on his own opinion of himself than on the judgment of the world if a god or a wise teacher should present himself to a man and bid him think of nothing and design nothing which he would not express as soon as he conceived it he could not bear it even for a single day so much more respect have we to what our neighbours shall think of us and to what we shall think of our own selves. There is yet another danger which is very real when earnest thought broods intently upon moral action and dissects its motives and its aims. It often ends in seeing mainly what is mean and selfish, in having eyes only for the baser side of human nature, in becoming fretful and suspicious, or in feeding the intellectual pride by stripping off what seem the mere disguises of hypocrisy and fashion and pointing to the canker-worm of selfishness in all the flowers and fruits of social life do we find anything in these meditations which may point to such painfulness of self-contempt or to any impatient scorn of the pettiness and vices of the men and women whom he knew a pure and noble nature such as his could not but be keenly sensitive to evil and he does not shrink from speaking of it often begin the morning by saying to yourself i shall meet with the busybody the ungrateful arrogant deceitful envious unsocial but he goes on to find a motive for patience and forbearance he was often sick and weary it would seem of social troubles and of uncongenial work men seek retreats for themselves houses in the country seashores and mountains and thou art too wont to desire such things very much it is in thy power whenever thou shalt choose to retire into thyself for nowhere either with more quiet or more freedom from troubles does a man retire than into his own soul constantly then give thyself this retreat and renew thyself and let thy principles be brief and fundamental which as soon as thou shalt recur to them will be sufficient to cleanse the soul completely and to send thee back free from all discontent with the things to which thou returnest he would find rest and comfort in a larger more hopeful view of things there are briars in the road turn aside from them do not add and why are such things made in the world for thou wilt be ridiculed by a man who is acquainted with nature As thou wouldst be by a carpenter or a shoemaker if thou didst find fault because in his workshop there were to be seen shavings and cuttings from the things which he was making. He exhorts himself to imitate the patience of the powers of heaven. The gods who are immortal are not vexed because during so long a time they must tolerate continually men such as they are, and so many of them bad. And besides this, they also take care of them in all ways but thou who art destined to end so soon art thou weary of enduring the bad in this too when thou art one of them but above all he would aim at cheerfulness in the thoughts of what is good and noble when thou wishest to delight thyself think of the virtues of those who live with thee for instance the activity of one and the modesty of another and the liberality of a third and some other good quality of a fourth for nothing delights so much as the examples of the virtues, when they are set before us in the morals of those who live with us. End of section thirteen.